You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hi there, this is Tom Myers, and this week on the Bowery Boys, Greg and I thought that we would wrap up this month of really spooky shows by releasing our Bowery Boys Movie Club episode from 2018 on Ghostbusters, uh, the the 1984 comedy classic, uh, which was shot all over New York City. Now, today's show is brought to you by our patrons who get free access to all of the Bowery Boys Movie Club episodes when joining us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And patrons, be sure to check out your feed because we just released a new episode today, the 1989 romantic comedy classic, When Harry Met Sally. It's pure escapism. But now, grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Ghostbusters, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Sigourney Weaver. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are so excited to be back for our second installment. Of the movie club. We hope that you've listened to Taxi Driver. We hope you've watched Taxi Driver. Well, yeah. And actually, I bet we'll mention it a few times in this show because for our latest episode, because we're in the Halloween Ghosts theme, we thought that we would take a look at the 1984 movie Ghostbusters. Ah, there it is, our favorite theme song. Um, I was wondering how long into this we'd have to wait before you would put that in. We thought we'd I just put that in there early because it's such an earworm. It will like ring in the back of your mind uh, for the rest of the show here. So, you know, by the way, that was my sixth grade talent in our talent show at Shoemaker School. I played the Ghostbusters theme song on the piano. No way! Yes, and I, I got a standing ovation at the end of it. Because I souped it up with a wow. little, yeah, little now, bit we, of magic at the end. But we, that was 1986, 1986, by the way. Uh-huh. So that song had been out for two years by 1986 yeah. and was very much still like, you know, on every elementary student's radar. <laughs> you know, the that song, by the way, I'm sure it's an American popular standard and kids all over the world are playing it. It was the number one in August of 1984. So, mm-hmm. you know, the movie had been out for a couple years. It was 
It was number one on the charts for three weeks. And you know what song it knocked out of number one? I just, because oh all these songs are... It's like are Casey <laughs> Kasem. We're already into... Well, who? When what? Doves Cry by oh. Prince. I mean, these wow. are all classics. And in fact, the number one song when Ghostbusters came out is Time After Time by Cyndi oh. Lauper. So classics all. Um, <laughs> and by the way, Casey Kasem and his top 100 countdown will make an appearance in this show. Mm. In this movie. That's right, it does. Well, let's... But let's yeah. not get ahead of ourselves. Well, let's just do a, a, a quick, like... Like, what is the movie when it came out? Yeah, you're going to situate us yes. situate us with Ghostbusters. And by the way, listener, if you haven't watched the movie in a while, I mean, for me, it had been more than two decades since mm-hmm. my last viewing. It is so fun to watch. Yeah, I mean... It's it, really great, and it's all over New York. I think it ages well, can I say that? I mean, you know, it's... They don't make them like that anymore. Uh, we just... We were talking before we started recording that the horror comedy is sort of an endangered species. That they have them, but they're really... They seem to be even more channeled towards children. But this movie, which, of course, appealed to kids, because we were kids when it came out, but was a huge, huge box office uh, success. In fact, it was the number two film... Uh, of 1984 after um the number one film but only by only by a mere five million dollars was beverly hills cop isn't that interesting and so the other movies that came out that year just to put yourself in that mindset indiana jones the temple of doom gremlins the karate kid police academy Footloose, Splash. These are Whoa, all 1980 these are 80s icons. They all came out the same year. And they were all big hits that year. Wow. Well, so Ghostbusters is directed by Ivan Reitman, who was a Canadian director and to me defines popular cinema of the late 70s and 80s. There's he is a truly 80s director. He did Meatballs, Stripes, Twins, mm-hmm. Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> So, so there's a reason that many of these movies have like this similar a similar feel. They sometimes like break into a a rock ballad for a sure, montage yes. uh-huh. that takes you around town. They have that special '80s feel because mm-hmm. many of them are directed by the same director. By the same director, and it was number one at the box office for seven weeks. So, so it was the big summer blockbuster, or certainly one of them. It was then unseated seven weeks later. By Purple Rain by Prince. So there's a little bit of like oh. a princess dancing with Ghostbusters in the pop culture. Wow. <laughs> right. On like stage and boombox. Yes. So the idea today is that we're going to go through the film loosely in order of, you know, the sequences of the, of the events. Of yeah. the events that unfold. Um, in, in terms of the plot, but we're also going to be talking about the role that New York plays in this movie. I mean, that's why we're here, right? Mm-hmm. So, because New York plays a very prominent role in Ghostbusters. It is shot on location all over New York, most prominently up at Columbia at, the, at New York Public Library at 42nd Street, along Central Park West, and then, of course, down in their office, the firehouse in Tribeca. And I would even say that there is a kind of subtextual thing going on, uh, which is that, you know, New York is recovering from a financial crisis. It's still kind of in the throes of it in many different ways. In 84. In 1984. Or 83 when they shot it. And so what the movie is sort of saying is that it's it's in such dire straits in all sorts 
sorts of different ways that the supernatural is sort of taking advantage of this, of some of the crumbling architecture and uh, some of the crime that's going on. So that kind of peeks in around the corner as a sort of a subtext for the whole film. Um, it, it would be a completely different movie if it was, say, set in Los Angeles or Las Vegas, for instance. Right, because I think one of the things that makes it creepy is that you're always in these big urban spaces. Um, there's an urban density about it, right? Yeah. That makes you afraid to have ghosts lurking about or stomping through the streets. Well, why don't we even start? Because that's a good way to start, actually, because the movie begins at one of these great pieces of architecture, these Gilded Age architecture. That would be the New York Public Library. Right. It even opens on an exterior shot of the public library with a bit of scaffolding out front. That's interesting. Like They don't hide the scaffolding. It is, in fact, under renovation when they filmed the movie there in 1983. So it was they were still working on it. The other interesting thing about starting at the New York Public Library is that, as we know from our podcast on Bryant Park mm-hmm. and on the Crystal Palace, that there used to be a potter's field here on this particular spot. And so this the actual movie plays with some places that have like legends attached to it. It's not consistent. Do you think that the screenwriter was aware of that? <laughs> Probably not, but who knows? It'd be kind of cool if they had been. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but we quickly go inside and we're inside the Rose reading room just for an establishing shot. But you see all these people working away at the tables. Um, Very much like they do today. So this is one example of one setting that has not really changed very much. Not at all. I spend a lot of times, in fact, editing the show sometimes, doing research in that very room. And it was like, oh, look. I mean, here we are, what, 35 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it looks almost the same. I will say one thing that I noticed that was quite different in that shot. Um, was that people had books. <laughs> well, they had books, and I also noticed the Dewey Decimal, the card catalogs, because right. the, there's, there's, there's a big, the ghost, so we haven't really said there's a ghost here. Right, yeah. well, but when we're in the reading room, the people who are there just like using the library are actually looking at books. Mm-hmm. There are um, also dictionaries out at the end of all the, the tables, and we see the librarian picking up some books and pushing along. Uh, so, so also there's the librarian like collecting books, you know, things it's, it's sweet and archaic because everybody's just like working on their laptops now, which is kind of depressing. But then she goes back down and she's filing them away. And then all of a sudden she's in the stacks underground. And that's where we have our first ghost yes. sighting. So there's like a, a librarian ghost. We know from la- like later explorations of Ghostbusters lore mm-hmm. from animated series and video games that uh, that her name is actually Dr. Eleanor Twitty and she was the head librarian from the 1920s here at the New York Public Library but you don't need by to what, by which you mean the ghost the ghost not yeah. the not the older oh, no, not the not female the actual, librarian right the, she's seeing a ghost of an older librarian that's right so that's a sort of establishing ghost and then we cut to Columbia University yes where we meet our main characters right they are Working ostensibly in the psychology department, the three scientists, the three researchers of paranormal activity, uh, they are, of course, Bill Murray, playing Peter Venkman. Yes. Then Harold Ramis, who Mm -hmm. plays Egon Spengler, the best name in the movie, in my personal opinion. And then Dan Aykroyd, who's playing the character Ray Stantz. Mm -hmm. The three of them kicking around. Well, actually, at that point... 
that scene is is actually just Bill Murray applying a, a test <laughs> to a, a male and a female student. Um, it, it's a, it is hilarious because it's hilarious yeah. and disturbing. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the way that he's <laughs> um, treating the the young man, and of course the way that he's ready to touch and try to seduce. The young female yeah. student. This was definitely a different generation. <laughs> yes, it's problematic a bit, but it's a comedy. Um, I wanted to mention is that Columbia doesn't, of course, have a department of paranormal psychology. It doesn't. It. It. Well, you should know, Mister Graduate. You didn't graduate in paranormal psychology. But- I would have if I had known it was available. But the American Society of Psychical Research, which was the sort of main sort of serious group that was studying paranormal activity in the late 19th century, um, its leader, James Hyslop, was a former professor of ethics and logic at Columbia University. So, you know, that again, whether it's done on purpose or not, like there is a a serious nod to the sort of intellectual aspect of studying the paranormal, Mm -hmm. which is kind of lampooned here because, of course, Bill Murray's sort of swagger is not really much like a professor that I've ever seen. Well, (laughs) which is why he ends up getting kicked out of the (laughs) department. And they show um, that his office is located in a place called Weaver Hall, uh, which does not exist. It was actually shot in Havemeyer Hall. So Dan Aykroyd's character, Ray, breaks in and says, Venkman, we got to go. There's been an apparition that's been seen by several people. So they race down to the New York Public Library. And that is actually where we meet Harold Ramis. Yes. And Egon. Who had already showed up. So mm-hmm. the three of them are together. They've got various machines with them, devices that are meant to measure the paranormal activity in the room. They go down to the card catalog downstairs and they find uh the the catalog that has had you know its cards like shot into the air the whole (laughs) room is covered in ectoplasmic slime (laughs) (laughs) yes ectoplasm we have discussed ectoplasm actually in a recent show yes we have (laughs) in in our harry houdini show uh back in the early 20th century late 19th century people did believe in this this like spiritual goo this like ghostly gum called yeah. ectoplasm um, that would emit from mediums and from spiritual, supernatural experiences. And I mean, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a friend and later rival of Harry Houdini, went on the road promoting the existence of ectoplasm. So it's funny to see that used in this film almost purely comedically almost like you can't do that on television you know when they dumped green slime on Mm -hmm. on your it's used slimed it's used in that same kind of like ew gross kind of aspect it doesn't have a it doesn't have a chilling (laughs) effect at all right because the ectoplasm that we talked about in the magician show from the end of the summer was more like a white substance right that would come out like almost like a gooey paper Mm -hmm. out of the mouth and this, as depicted in Ghostbusters, is much more... I love how I'm trying to break this down seriously. <laughs> no, it's true. But, but the slime, it's a slime. It's like a clear, gooey... It's almost like mucus. Well, did did you ever play with it as a kid? They, of course, had yeah. like a million toys that you were... you get in a vending machine. Uh-huh. Like yeah. a little <laughs> capsule of slime. Yeah, it was gross. Like you put it on your nose and scare your little sister. That right. kind of thing. Right, I'm sure it was toxic. <laughs> 
anyway, so these the ghosts as depicted, we talked about this earlier before we before we started recording, the fact that it's actually not scary, but when I was a kid, I do remember being scared of that librarian, but almost from that point, right. once we start seeing these sort of like more comedic ghosts, the Slimer character and things like that, it's more action packed, but it's not as scary. So they get down there, they see the slime all over the card catalog and they break off, you know, and Harold Ramis's character, I believe, turns the corner and looks down and sees a ghost of an old woman, this old librarian, uh-huh. who's reading a book and turns to him and says, shh. He calls the others over, or maybe it was Bill Murray's character. Mm-hmm. One of them sees it. They, bring, they all come together. They don't know what to do. Bill Murray walks up, tries to talk sensibly to her, saying, where do you come from? And she turns and... And she suddenly transforms into this monster and says, you know, like, like this. And the three of them do a Three Stooges style scamper. There's no other way to to describe it. They scamper. And I mean, I'd like to know the logistics of this because they're down in the stacks. And then you just, it cuts to them like spilling out of the front doors. (laughs) I mean, today they'd have to show their bags. Oh, that's on true. the way out the door. <laughs> they would like race. They'd hold them open as they're racing out the door. Yeah. Um, and that's really when the movie starts. Yes, because they decide, first of all, that they are able to come up with a technology to capture the ghosts, right? So now they are not just ghost hunters. They now can become ghost busters because they can capture them. Unfortunately... Columbia, it mm-hmm. seems, has had enough of them. Right, because they go right back up to their lab... They go into Weaver Hall, into their room, only to find that they're being kicked out by the head of the department, who basically says, you guys are a bunch of frauds, and mm-hmm. you need to leave. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They don't give up. They decide instead to look for a cheap office space. Mm-hmm. There's some quick reference to, I think, Dan Aykroyd's character cashing out his money. Is that right? One of them cashes out their money. They go to the Manhattan City Bank, which is not a real bank, but it was like, located in the movie across the street from the public library. And they don't know what to do. So they have to go somewhere that's super cheap mm-hmm. and a place that no one wants to go to. Sounds like Tribeca. <laughs> so then, of course, the most famous like set one of probably one of the most famous sets in the 1980s certainly um they go and they have they eventually lease i guess or rent this old firehouse that's down on north moore street and north moore and varick street yes uh their realtor says it's a real fixer-upper you know <laughs> she can't believe that somebody's actually going to take it it's amazing because the fire station has been cemented like mm-hmm. the walls are cemented up you know the place does look pretty ratty. It's got oh yeah. It's got graffiti on it. Well, there's two kind of fun things about setting it here, which is amazing. I mean, we have talked about this building in our Tribeca show, mm-hmm. um, and the reason that it's only half half the fire station it used to be <laughs> was because it it, it literally yeah. was cut in half. It yeah. cut in half when they when they widened Varick Street. But when they started filming this movie in 1983, Tribeca was just coming up as a hip neighborhood so in terms of a mainstream audience it seemed perfectly fine oh this is a terrible neighborhood in fact 
Spengler, he quotes, he has a quote from the movie saying, I think this building should be condemned. The neighborhood, it looks like a demilitarized zone. The, the funny thing is, is that literally like if you were a New Yorker, probably like a like a, a hip New Yorker, you're probably laughing at that because Tribeca has by 1984, been a very hip neighborhood Mm. um, and would only become more so. And as, of course, today we know it's a very trendy, very expensive and a very beautiful neighborhood with a great history. But it's funny to see this that history kind of played up yeah. or played down. I mean, played depending down on to the public at- <laughs> because actually all three of those actors would have been familiar with Tribeca as a hip neighborhood. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they would have thought that that was probably kind of funny to present it to the country well, as and, that uh-huh. kind of... <laughs> well, another person, another actor in this who would be very familiar with Tribeca as a hip place would be a claimed New York theater actress Sigourney Weaver who makes an appearance in this film she is the kind of romantic female lead yeah not just an appearance she's got like one of the leads <laughs> yeah. yeah and so we're introduced to her as soon as they sign that office lease it cuts to her like getting out of a getting out of a taxi i think and going home to her ritzy penthouse apartment on central park west when she gets to the building, yeah, it's at 55 Central Park West. She actually takes a cab there. Do you see she's in a checker cab, which is oh, really yeah. cool. It's a nice little detail to look to look up. Because even by then, by 84, I think the checker cabs were kind of like... Kind of getting out of the of the way. So, yeah. the, so she goes up to her apartment and she bumps into her annoying <laughs> neighbor. And Louis but, Tully. But my favorite person in the whole film. I just have to say this about Rick Moranis. Yeah, in, and we should say Louis Tully, her neighbor, is played by Rick Moranis. You know, this was the the eighties. He had he had been in Revenge of the Nerds. He was sort of the nerd archetype of yeah. the film. He this owned time. that character. But today, if he wore if he wore what he wore in this film on the streets of New York, he would be photographed as like a like a modern hipster because he looks like amazing. Amazing, yeah. I think. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, he's like adorable, but he's also like he was what we would call style today. <laughs> but back then, it was anti-style. Well, also, I mean, like for comedic effect, he's talking about health food. In the, the first time that we meet him, he's trying to c- invite her in for a glass of mineral water. Um, and he's like telling her, he's bragging to her about like the various health tonics and things, these fads that he's been picking up. So basically, a guy who looks like him, <laughs> who seems very emotionally available, <laughs> yes. approaching his, you know, single neighbor, inviting her in basically because he's juicing. <laughs> you know, like this is very believable today. Yeah, I think so. But he gets locked out of his apartment, which is and like a funny, running gag. a running gag. Yeah. And she um and she which by the way, we should just say that Dana Sigourney Weaver's character works for the uh, New York Philharmonic. She is a very assured, very beautiful, confident woman, mm. but she's about to have um, a serious brush with the supernatural here in her apartment. So she walks into her apartment, which, by the way, is all sort of like pastel pink, you know, <laughs> floral. It's glamorous in a kind of dynasty way, mm-hmm. you know? So she's kind of walking through. I'm sure in the 80s, everybody was like, oh my love that apartment. Of course she's got such a stylish apartment. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a perfume commercial. <laughs> right. She pushes the, you know, the swinging door into her kitchen and she puts down her groceries and she takes out the eggs 
and the <laughs> eggs start moving and bubbling up and then exploding into the air. And she's like, oh my God. And she runs over and she opens up her fridge and she sees some sort of <laughs> apocalyptic vision in there that involves like a triangle that's yeah. glowing it's and like, a, like it's an a, altar. A demonic hellscape in the refrigerator. I mean, that's that, that's the thing. Hellscape. That's the thing about this scene is that there's no like technically no nothing comedic happening, but it's just the whole conceit of this like demonic hellscape in the refrigerator. Yeah, it's like it is <laughs> it is remarkably unscary, which is great given given the scariness of the, you know, of the elements. And it just cuts from that then straight down to the guys at work down in Tribeca in their fire station office where their secretary were introduced to the character of Janine, the secretary who is played by a lovely Annie Potts. <laughs> who would later go on to stardom on designing women, mm-hmm. but she's a, also an acclaimed actress. We love her. I almost played racquetball. Isn't that the quote? <laughs> anyway, she's got this exaggerated New York accent. New York secretary New York accent. secretary accent. It's very specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Lily Tomlin in the 70s. Like in the, you know, Lily when Tomlin, are you yeah. going to hire some more help around here? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. She's fabulous. In the very first scene, though, Harold is like fixing her computer. Mm-hmm. Did you notice this? And there's kind of a gag. He suddenly emerges from underneath her desk, which is like a <laughs> that, funny, it's a sort of threes company move. That is the know? that is this movie's equivalent of like body sex comedy. Right. <laughs> No, but it is. It's very Jack Ripper. Ja- uh, J- uh, John Ritter. John Ritter. Jack. <laughs> Jack Tripper. Jack Tripp. Not Jack the Ripper. No, God. That's a different kind That's of a- horror. No, but so he comes out. So he's the nerdy uh, real scientist, Harold Ramis, Egon. And uh, she's like, she's reading a magazine. You know, I'm just reading my magazine because nobody's calling. And he looks at her and says, haven't you heard? print is dead oh really which i find like maybe that like that was the most futuristic of all of the lines who was saying Mm -hmm. that in 84 i I guess some some people were were hinting at it but yeah forecasting you know uh futurists egon by the way has another one of my favorite lines in this scene because dana then comes in so she saw the commercial for Ghostbusters, I guess they Dana afford, Sigourney Weaver. Yes, yeah, Sigourney Weaver, Dana. So she comes in and she wants to like to get their help, and of because course she's seen the hellscape in her fridge. <laughs> so she meets Bill Murray, who of course is completely stricken with her because she's beautiful, and because there's a client. Oh, and they have a client. Like they, yeah. have, they don't. Right, that's the other thing. They don't even have any clients. So she's like perfect. But in in describing what's happening with her refrigerator, he says, "quote Generally, you don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance." And it's the kind of line that's not funny on its own. But the way Bill Murray says it with this like yeah. like he's, his deadpan. I mean, in in a way, Bill Murray's performance is amazing in this because yeah. it almost seems like he doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's so specific, you know, yeah. it seems, yeah, it's like he's, he's over his role in a way, but yet his role is to be over it. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing. And then, I mean, we see, we've seen him do this in other films, so it's yeah. just sort of his style, this right. sort of like, there's like a tissue of, of like not being present, but of course he is because he's, he's brilliant. And so- of course he falls for Sigourney or Dana They and says like, why don't we go up there? 
too sweet. Let's go up to your apartment and check it out. So they go up to her apartment and he immediately starts making the moves on her, right? Which, again, is a little bit disturbing on some levels because she has to forcibly push him out of her apartment once he real once she realizes that he's like more interested in her than in finding the ghosts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she looks at him in one point. This is my favorite line of hers because she says something like, what are you? And he says, I'm a scientist. And she says, you know, you don't act like a scientist. You're more like a game show host. <laughs> Which is so true. It was so she, true. She, she just puts it he's into, constantly yeah. trying to con her into going on a date. And so eventually she's somewhat humored by him, but she does have to like push him out of her apartment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's very aggressive. Actually, this right. is another like slightly odd dated kind of thing. To yeah, this movie. that doesn't it wouldn't pushy, work yeah. like this anymore. And you get the sense at this moment in the movie that these Ghostbusters, even though they can somehow advertise on local TV, they're going to go out of business had it not been for a call from the Sedgwick Hotel. Oh, right. Now, the Sedgwick, everyone might be like, where is that? Is that on Fifth Avenue? Sure sounds like a Fifth Avenue the hotel. The Sedgwick Hotel is fake. So it's interesting because most of the movie is set in real places. Not only is it a faked hotel, but it's filmed in Los Angeles. Now, I would be very disappointed in this movie for doing that, if not for the fact that the building that stands in for the Sedgwick is actually the Biltmore Hotel, which is the site of several Academy Awards original ceremonies in the 30s. I love that. I've stayed in that (laughs) hotel. It's so fun. It's one of the coolest places in Los Angeles and it it's, itself is famously haunted by the ghost of the Black Dahlia. Oh. <laughs> so it actually like it makes sense. But I forgot to mention they arrive at the Sedgwick Hotel because the the hotel is being haunted. They arrive in their ghost mobile. Oh, that was the the first sighting of the famed ghost mobile. So they peel into this place. They all walk in through the lobby in their full-on Ghostbusters uniforms, backpacks, the whole thing looking around, looking like astronauts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they walk over and they wait for the elevator. And a guy who's in front of them for the elevator looks at them and says, what are you guys? Some Oh, he says, what are you guys? Some kind uh-huh. of cosmonaut? <laughs> oh, right. And Bill Murray says, um, we're exterminators. <laughs> and the guy says, that must be one hell of a cockroach. <laughs> So they, and this is where they they sort of use their ghost capturing device for the first time. It's where they capture the Slimer, right? Isn't this a Slimer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first we see them use their their torches or whatever those things are. When they torch first the housekeeper in the hallway. (laughs) The Um, poor maid. The poor maid. And then Ray, uh, Dan Aykroyd's character. Or or rather her car. Her car. Yeah, she's she's uninjured. Um, He's walking around smoking. While he's like ghost hunting. And let's just talk about that for a second. There's so much smoking. It's like, (laughs) it's so interesting to see a film from the 80s again. Because like all of these guys are smoking. Larry King's in later. He's smoking. Everybody's smoking. (laughs) And you don't see people smoking cigarettes anymore. And you certainly wouldn't be smoking in a hotel. No. Not when you're hunting ghosts. So anyway, this actually kind of puts them on the map. 
right? So this, like, this particular event capturing this ghost, they get, like, a series of new jobs from this yeah. point, right? And there's, like, well, a Well, we montage. should just mention that they this is a big moment in the movie because they go down to the banquet room of the hotel, and they're able to, aside from, unfortunately, trashing the banquet room before <laughs> right. somebody, like, uh-huh. holds a banquet there— they manage to capture a ghost and they walk out with a ghost trapped in a little device. Mm -hmm. So we have now seen them capture a ghost and we understand now like how they quickly then become famous for this and there's one of these great montages (laughs) with their theme song shots all over town. This is when we see like Larry King talking with them. We see them on the cover of Time and People. Omni Magazine. (laughs) Omni Magazine. They're on the post. So then you see them run through Rockefeller Center. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there is a funny story related to that, which is, this is kind of charming to me. The fact that, you know, even, you know, back then there were tons of tourists in Rockefeller Center and they just went ahead and they just filmed within the tourists. So, so like, if they weren't No clearances, no sign-offs. No, so there was a high school student named Jeff Nichols from New Jersey who had a little bit of a, like, a little burst of instant fame because he just happened to be at Rockefeller Center and actually is weirdly prominent for like a half second in this and didn't realize it because they didn't have yeah he didn't sign a release form he just happened to be there so then when the film came out like he became a kind of little instant celebrity in his town a because meme <laughs> like in 84 back in the meme right so and the New York Times actually interviewed him in July and said he said quote I got a bunch of phone calls from friends who saw it saying hey Jeff you're in the movie it's strange to think that I'm in a movie that plays all over the country I guess it's like being part of history oh well he is i mean we're talking about him right now so but that i just like there's something kind of like a little rough and wild west about having them just filming in Rockefeller center with you know yeah random people there's also a quick cut of casey Kasem Mm -hmm. in his top 100 countdown um, he was a radio DJ uh, who had America's Top 40, right? Wasn't uh-huh. America's Top 40? We see Sigourney Weaver like doing um, ironing. No, she's chopping food and drinking a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> and she's listening to Casey Kasem <laughs> talk about the Ghostbusters. <laughs> we should add that sort of like after this montage, they get a fourth member. The fourth Ghostbuster arrives, and that is Winston, played by Ernie Hudson. So yes. now so now there's like a quartet of Ghostbusters. Right. They're growing. And of course, in his first scene, he's also smoking with all of them. <laughs> and we'll get to more Ghostbusters right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. 
In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We then find Sigourney or Dana coming out of her job. There's a great scene at Lincoln Center where Bill Murray goes to find her. And actually, he's attended one of her, I believe, rehearsals or performances. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. But she's coming out of Avery Fisher Hall um, with her like humorless colleague maybe (laughs) like possible suitor um who's sneezing and like he looks sickly she agrees to a date with um with bill murray and then we're back at the fire station where there is an a visit from an inspector from the epa from the environmental protection agency it's like kind of a twist you don't really expect this to happen so it's this really is a different era when the epa was focused on enforcement (laughs) But don't bump. Um, th- by the way, so this is an interesting scene. It's it's it sets up the fact that they've been storing all of these ghosts that they've been capturing in the basement in, in some kind of a storage facility. Right, it's I kind don't... of like a trash compactor, you know. <laughs> Except it's a ghost compactor yeah. in the basement. You take the cartridge, you push it in a device, you close the door, you push a button. And then you wait for it to turn green and tell you you're in the clear. And the EPA inspector is basically saying, look, we're hearing tales of noxious fumes coming from this firehouse. One thing that I found a little disturbing about this sort Uh of plot twist is that the EPA inspector is set up to be a bad guy. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Like from the moment we see him and we realize there's like something bad about him. So, like, his very last climactic moment, he is somebody to be disliked and to be rooted against. Hmm. That's a, that's a, that says something about the 80s, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that we were supposed to dislike him. So, uh, the other thing to notice in this scene in terms of just history, that on the back wall of where the office is, there's actually a framed photo above Bill's um, Venkman's desk of fire horses in the original firehouse that the, that was the original larger wow. firehouse. Wow. I mean, How I can't. How did you get that detail? <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't like 
verify that that was the actual firehouse, but it's at, le- at least depict- supposed to be a depiction of the old historic firehouse that was formerly there. So again, somebody did their homework. Someone did their homework in this movie. Yeah, this these were not um, no random. Right. No. So then we go from there back up to Sigourney's apartment on Central Park West, and it's the night of the big date. She's going mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. She's going to call mom, and then she's changing into a new outfit to go meet Bill yes. and to, you know, he's going to come and pick her up. Lewis, Rick Moranis' character, uh-huh. is throwing a party, <laughs> as luck would have it, for it turns out that Lewis is also an accountant, aside from being a health food nut. And so he's invited all of his clients over for some like sensible heavy hors d'oeuvres. They're going to be mingling, and he really wants her to come over. And he's even said, please come over. We're going to be playing Parcheesi and Twister. <laughs> um, f- featured in that scene, by the way, is an actress named Jean Kasem. So with, she's the... The, the tall bl- blonde? Yes, the tall blonde, who happens to be, of course, the wife of Casey Kasem, whose right. voice has appeared earlier in the film. So she and, was an act- she was a successful actress in her own right. And by the way, I can never talk about Casey Kasem enough or let the opportunity to pass without mentioning that of course he was the voice of Shaggy on <laughs> Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Zoinks! Which which also spent a lot of time cracking down ghosts, didn't it? <laughs> he so. did. Yeah, and that's he was in that world. So anyway, so she's in, she calls mom. She's getting ready to like change. She's sitting in some sort of a peach colored stuffed armchair. And suddenly there's some strange lights and sounds coming from the kitchen. This would have been a very convenient time to call Bill Murray's cell phone. Had there been <laughs> oh, yeah. cell phones oh, yes. in the day uh-huh. to say, get your butt over here. But instead, it's... Uh, too late, the door flies open, and all, like, literally hell breaks loose, coming from her kitchen, <laughs> yes. straight for her. This demon, like a monster. Yes. Well, attacks her and changes her, as we find out very soon, into a monster. Yes. Into a kind of demonic dog. <laughs> I just want to say really quickly before we move on, because it's part of... They actually, in the film, attempt a actual history of the building, because there's a reason that there's this demonic thing, and that the architect in the film of the building is a man named Ivo Shandor, and in fact, that is not the architect of uh, 55 Central Park West. The building was constructed in 1929. The architectural firm of Schwartz and Gross actually Ah. designed the building, but it was the home to Ginger Rogers, Donna Karen, Calvin Klein lived in this particular building. So, but just to say that they are trying something here where they are taking history and they're trying to tie the supernatural elements into a kind of created history, but that's, you know, that's not really based on anything. So anyway, the so, dog, so, so Dana's now a dog. So she's been sort of transformed into a ghost or into some kind of hell creature. And we cut back over to Lewis's party and to Gene Kasem and to all the <laughs> oh, various yes. friends, you know, which is hilarious because like they arrive and he says, you know, like, oh, the, hi, everybody. Say hi to Martin and Laura Shearer. You know, Marty's, um, he went bankrupt three months ago and she's drawing on her like investments. She's <laughs> yeah. got another three months, you know, have some salmon. Uh, when all of a sudden there's a sound from his bedroom, he thinks somebody has brought a dog. Yeah, he who opened, brought the dog? Yeah, brought the, brought the dog, and suddenly the the door like is torn down, and this crazy 
beast tears through his apartment. Everybody runs screaming, and he runs for his life out of the building and into Central Park, up a couple blocks, and basically runs to Tavern on the Green, which makes this great cameo. We're in the Tavern on the Green uh, main dining room looking from their perspective as Rick Moranis' character is like pounding on the glass trying to get anybody's attention. Yeah, so unfortunately then he is possessed by this dog, this creature, right? Right, when he gets attacked, basically when you get attacked by... These ghosts, these, these stone monsters, and you, you become, become one. You become possessed by them. So, what's sort of interesting is that last month we did Taxi Driver, right? And there was a there's a huge scene, a pivotal scene set in front of the main monument in Columbus Circle. That's there, right? So, main monument makes an appearance here because the next time we see Rick Moranis, he's now possessed, right? But he's stumbles out of Central Park right here at the main monument. And, you know, he pushes people away and there's like right, a there's a right. food vendor and everything. And but he's like he's looking kind of insane, but also Doesn't hilarious. Have, I think red eyes yes. at a certain point. <laughs> and then Bill Murray goes up to call on Dana, you know, because they have this date. And he goes into her apartment and is like, Wow, you really should have cleaned up for me. You know, you've got company coming over. The place has been completely trashed because obviously there's been some sort of horrible incident here there's ectoplasm dripping mm-hmm. from every surface and he finds her looking like elvira mistress <laughs> of the night she has been transformed into zoo zool 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 <laughs> are you the key master i am the gatekeeper um, and she's like sort of super eroticized, like having a demon in you super eroticizes you. So, of course, Bill is understandably confused. Right. He's confused. He's excited. But then pretty quickly as she's trying to forcibly seduce him in yeah. her bedroom, he realizes this is not right. Something's not right here. Then she starts to levitate. And he really understands that something's not, something's up. Now, meanwhile, downtown, Rick Moranis, Lewis Tully, possessed, has been taken to the Ghostbusters headquarters, <laughs> um, where there's this hilarious scene with, with Janine. Do you want some coffee, Mr. Tully? There's something very strange about that man. <laughs> I know people, and I'm afraid of that man. <laughs> So he's sort of in their in their possession, but then yeah, and and by the way, then the EPA shows up too. They've got a search warrant, and they're there to finally shut the place down. So once again, this bad guy, the EPA inspector, is forcing them to turn off their quote protection grid mm, down yeah. in the basement. Uh-huh. Finally, they relent because they have to. They've got a police officer. They shut the whole thing down. And it's a disaster. Oh, yes. Spirits start shooting out of the roof. (laughs) Uh, This is a spectacular kind of montage of great New York places in 1984. (laughs) You see, like, demons, devils, and ghosts all over the place. Um, Just, like, old-timey ghosts. All different kinds (laughs) of ghosts. And they are, like, floating over the New York City City skyline. But you see them on the subway. You see them at a newsstand in front of City Hall. There's a ghost taxi cab. Yeah. Yeah, it's like ghost gag after ghost gag. A hot dog vendor like lifts up like the lid on his hot dog tray and a bunch of ghosts come up 
like eating hot dogs. Their mouth is like yes. filled with hot dogs. So New York City is is taken over. Um, just there's there are a couple really fun little shots of Times Square. By the way, there's one scene where you you can see the Wienerwald Wienerwald in Times Square, which was um, a German chain. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like on uh, sort of on like Seventh Avenue and Forty Fifth, I think. But anyway, it's fun to see Times Square in that particular oh, yeah. period. Yeah. Um, Sigourney, meanwhile, Dana's still up in her apartment. For whatever reason, the walls have been blown out, <laughs> and she's kind of like gothing up and yeah, hanging uh-huh. out and sort of... She spends a, most of the rest of the movie when we see her as Sigourney kind of like lounging about in a kind of goth manner. Her, her considerable theatrical skills are not employed, really, for the rest of the movie. She pretty much is like has to sit in front of like a wind machine and kind of looks vaguely like sexy slash threatening. And the guys, meanwhile, have been locked up. So yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they're yeah, locked yeah. up. And they're trying to figure this out. There's a funny scene because they're with a bunch of other male prisoners mm-hmm. being temporarily held in some kind of set. This yes. is not a jail that New York has. Uh-huh. But these guys are, they're about 15 guys hanging out in the same jail cell together. And they're talking, the, they're, they've got their maps and they're kind of like trying to figure out what it is about this building. And that's when we find out the history of the building mm-hmm. um, and how they used to do like sacrifices on the roof and whatever. <laughs> And all the other prisoners, all the other guys there, like, they're very interested in knowing, like, <laughs> mm, it, it's it's a very Scooby-Doo moment. Well, let's go to City Hall yeah. next, right? Because then, so... They get pulled out of jail. They get pulled out of jail because, like, they don't know what to do. And these are the only people, like, they are the ghost busters. Maybe there's something that they can do to help contain them. What's interesting about that opening, that shot when you see, when you walk into City Hall... Like, they didn't just use any old shot of City Hall. There's actually, like, a banner over the door that says, Furnishing the Streets, 1902-1922. That was an actual, like, exhibit that was in the rotunda, which opened on September 22nd, 1983, that featured antique street decorations. So that was a real... Show in 1983. In 1983, interesting. That had actually was there, so that that's that is the city hall that you know that we are. So they didn't even take down the banner for the film. Isn't that funny? That's great. I don't know. It's a great detail. You could just you you can put it precisely in time. Also, it's fun because as they're walking up the stairs to see Lenny, the mayor, you see the general public is also swarming them. There's media, but also the public back in the day. When citizens could just walk into City Hall. Yeah, which you you could do until the 1990s. So the mayor, who is kind of an Ed Koch type of uh, of character, is convinced that they're the only people who can stop this. Because we should say, the city knows by this point and is admitting to themselves that something's going on, right? Like the, the police are saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is where it crosses into kind of fantasy a little bit because (laughs) because obviously if this were to happen if paranormal activities on this scale were to happen (laughs) in new york city the i think the city government would take it immediately very seriously (laughs) we have seen needless to say needless to say we have many many instances some as recent as yesterday where we've seen the city just like on top of something mobilized mobilized in lockdown so this is kind of a funny comic book version of a meeting in City Hall Mm -hmm. where you have the chief of police saying, 
Your Honor, I think that there is something going on here, you know, with a map of the city <laughs> and like little icons where all these instances have been mapped. Mm-hmm. We see the Archbishop of the Catholic Church giving him some counsel. Oh, my gosh. You know, That's about funny. like what? Well, this could be the end of time. You know, this could be like the end of days. And then meanwhile, that cuts to Sigourney's apartment where Lewis knocks on her door. Meanwhile, he's been trying to like hook up with her this whole time. <laughs> and Rick Moranis's character, you know, knocks on the door and he says with crazy eyes, I am the key master. And she says, I am the gatekeeper. And then they start making out. So they yeah. finally like come together. <laughs> and this like they're like now possessed by this evil demon. So our heroes, the four Ghostbusters, head up to town to confront whatever this is and they and there's no elevator so they have to walk all the way up to the penthouse and this is sort of funny little business where they're huffing and puffing and meanwhile they're just like black clouds of, of ghosts above the a building swirl. A yeah. swirl it's like the sky is just black above that apartment building and everybody is in the streets staring up people are saying their final prayers like nuns are in the streets <laughs> habits on display there is bad 80s rock jamming <laughs> happening. I mean, there's the fate of the world it will be determined by what happens here on the Upper West Side. Uh, I always wondered, by the way, is will the rest of the, will the entire world crumble to dust if they are not successful? Or is it just New York City? Or is it just that one building? <laughs> or is it just like, oh, well, we'll just have to close off the Upper West Side to tourists until further notice, until we can clean this up. But yeah, I have a feeling it that... It is a mess. Yes. And the building has actually started to crumble when they get there. They are at that point treated as celebrities because the media has been on top of mm-hmm. them. Yes. So th- there are crowds like chanting in the streets, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, <laughs> Ghostbusters, as they kind of like wave hi, Oh, we got this. We got this. But then the ground kind of like opens up. They get swallowed into it. A police vehicle goes way up in the air. Everything kind of like... It looks like the whole building might just sink into the earth, Mm -hmm. but it stops for a second. So there's like evil spirits at play here. They crawl out and everybody cheers them on (laughs) as they do like they put their hands together. They say like one big cheer together and they go in the building. All right. And that's when they go up the steps. That's when they go. They climb all the way up to the very top. Um, Now... What's great is you see, now that we're at the very top of the penthouse, you see all this kind of like faux gargoyle art deco <laughs> kind of stuff around, which is very cool. But then we did then swiftly go from like kind of an old style to like the like 1980s glam. <laughs> right. Complete with like bolts of lightning and like black smoke. <laughs> and we, yeah, I mean, it looks like a rock concert at this point because then we see this sort of hellscape open up and, and we, see- we no longer see Sigourney and Rick Moranis. They are Rick now, Moranis. Yes. They have been transformed into like hell dogs. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. But we were introduced to this new demon character, Gozer. Now, right. Gozer sounds like it's going to be this monster, but in fact, it looks a lot like Sheena Easton. <laughs> um, this like 80s rock woman. And this rock woman, she's very, very uh, glamorous. She looks almost like she's from Cats, the Broadway show Cats. At one point, she like leaps over Bill Murray's character, to which he responds, Oh, she's a nimble little minx. (laughs) 
but then so we should just mention they keep wisecracking that's why it really is like the three stooges we're talking about this play-by-play as if you know it's it's a normal action film yeah like the fate of the world is at stake here but But they're they're, wisecracks throughout the entire thing so then gozer asks are you a god and you know dan Aykroyd says no because they're not and so then she's like then die <laughs> and then like shoots a, a bolt of energy and they almost fall off the building they're almost blown off the building but they but they're able to like rescue themselves pull themselves back up again right and she disappears for a time for time we think it's over and then they realize, oh, wait a second. The only rule with that is that we can't think of anything. Oh, right. But she had said earlier to choose the form of destructor. Choose the form of, like, the who's going to end the world. So they were like, you know, keep your mind blank. Don't think of anything. Don't think of anything. And then finally, there's a pause. And finally, the choice has been made. So someone thought of something. And, of course, it was, it was Ray. And, you know, he had been thinking he was hungry. <laughs> He was thinking of the character that he thought of when he needed a safe space, mm-hmm. you know, a childhood character, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, <laughs> which, which is, is sweet. Very well, literally. Very, very sweet. <laughs> and the city's about to get a lot stickier and sweeter because it, is, it now manifests into this gigantic Marshmallow Man. And this is where the movie sort of... Be- pays homage i think to things like king kong here but in a comedic fashion if king kong were to somehow like turn into a bunch of goo because you have like a what 200 foot tall marshmallow man who's kind of limbering through traffic at columbus circle causing chaos and traffic madness as he he sort of stomps his way up central park west um he even destroys Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, which is actually the next door neighbor of 55 Central Park West. It's a lovely place, but in this timeline... And it's still there. And it's still there, but in this timeline, it is destroyed by a marshmallow monster. <laughs> so they don't know how to fight this thing because it's way too big. It's bigger than anything, any ghost they've ever fought before. So they do the unthinkable. They, quote, cross their streams of their guns to create an enormous explosion he explodes and marshmallow goo comes raining down on the streets. Now, I mean, in reality, this would be a horrible tragedy because people would be like smothered in such a like a rain of goo. But instead, we get some kind of like delightful, funny moments of of people getting like slop on their yeah. faces. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> want a little bit of marshmallow, you know? So our heroes are completely covered in marshmallow goo. They kind of wipe it off their brow and their faces. And then they hear like a tap, tap, tapping on one of the gargoyles, uh, a sort of like a charred animal statue. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, like Sigourney Weaver is inside it, breaking free, <laughs> breaking free of this cursed uh, ghost mm-hmm. that has possessed her. As does Rick Moranis' character. Yes, yes. Luke Lewis Tully is in the other gargoyle. So they break, they break free. They are rescued. The building is trashed, (laughs) but the day has been saved by the Ghostbusters. They go downstairs. They are treated like heroes. (laughs) Everybody is somehow still there. 
from like right before they went into the building. This is where the movie literally, it's almost like they just stopped filming because it's literally everyone praising and rejoicing as these actors are coming out and they're just waving, waving. and they're just being like, they're just being rapturously received and there's really kind of no acting going on because then they get into the car and then the theme song plays and it kind of just keeps going and going. <laughs> yeah, they they kiss, Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver kiss, they head off, Rick Moranis comes down, says something funny, he goes the other way. Yeah, they all kind of, emer- it's like they take a curtain call. They come <laughs> yeah, out that, one at a time. That really is what it is. It's a, it's a curtain call. <laughs> And then the has there like- been a Ghostbusters <laughs> musical um, on the Broadway stage? It looks like someone did attempt a stage musical adaptation of Ghostbusters called the Ghostbusters '80s Rock Musical. I don't know. It's it, okay. there's no plans for it, but I have to say that I smell an opportunity. Look, if King Kong mm-hmm. can make it to Broadway, as it's, it's you know it will be playing soon, like, then the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. It would be it would be sinfully easy to 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 mount this on the stage, and you can see where musical numbers would emerge. I mean, who knows how they would zap ghosts? But you know, they oh, they look, they've sank the Titanic. Spider Man's you know spun his web from the Broadway stage. I can figure this stuff out. Of course, they can use the classic songs from the Ghostbusters soundtrack, which which featured not only, of course, the big song, but another one of my favorite songs called In the Name of Love oh, yeah. by Thompson Twins, Cleaning Up the Town by the Bus Boys, Air Supplies, I Can Wait Forever, and even a song by Laura Branigan called Hot Night. <laughs> so a great soundtrack to, to listen to, perhaps, uh, as you're passing out candy for trick-or-treaters. So we hope you've enjoyed this sort of mad dash through <laughs> Ghostbusters, even if you didn't rewatch it. But we really hope you do sit down. I mean, just give it look. It's an hour and 45 minutes and you won't regret it. We want to thank you all for supporting us on Patreon. It really is because of your support that Greg and I are able to devote our time to producing the normal show mm-hmm. and we couldn't do it without your help and so we want to announce the next movie so that you can go ahead and watch it mm-hmm. and it's then your assignment the movie for November will be a movie that will be celebrating its 60th anniversary of release and that is Anti-Mame there you have it you have several weeks that movie can be actually watched <laughs> over two different viewings. It's a surprisingly long movie, but There's... full of a lot of pleasure and a lot of very interesting New York City details. It may That may surprise a lot of people, but we're going to break those down for you on our next show. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. We'll see you at the movies. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.